0: Once we started to get sight on that journey, when we added the billions and we were celebrating the billions that we were penetrating of basically the world's population, all of a sudden we started to realize, hey, we're gonna run out of people. So we have two options. Either we make more people or we start to connect new things. And we said the first sounded more fun, (laughs) which was (laughs) a joke internally. But the second one is really where we started to see microprocessors and the technology of microprocessors entering into almost everything. And that was a parallel universe.
1: Welcome to another episode of Transmissions from Tomorrow, the show that gives you an inside route to the people driving the digital transformation of business and technology in the world of telecommunications. And I'm your host, Des Blanchfield. And I'm very excited to share that today I have with me in the studio, Ulf Elbodsen. Ulf, how are you today?
0: I am very fine, Des. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for making time uh, available to catch up with me in the studio uh, when you're a very busy day. And I know you have a hard stop, so well, let's get straight into things. Uh, I understand over there today, and, and you're in uh, uh, Schuster. I've learned to bounce properly. Uh, about 20 minutes uh, north of Stockholm near the airport, aren't you, from memory?
0: I am. This is what they called the Mobile Valley before, but this is where mobile telephony once had its cradle in Sweden.
1: I, uh, my first night there when we, uh, headed over from, uh, I think we had a night in Stockholm and then we came over to Schuster and we got there quite late, about 11 o'clock, but it's still very bright. I went walking around. It was freezing cold, two layers of clothing okay. on. I think I walked for about an hour and 45 minutes around and I didn't run out of Ericsson's, uh, campus. It's that large. But what was interesting, I woke up the next day and there was a couple of inches of snow on the ground. I understand it's uh, pretty gold there today as well.
0: It is very cold here, Um, but the Swedes wish it was a little bit colder because everyone is hoping for a white Christmas. We have a little bit of layer of snow on the ground, but we need more to have a full celebration.
1: I'm very jealous because our equivalent of a white Christmas here in Australia was... uh, 37 degrees celsius yesterday with the sandy white beaches and roasting so uh, <laughs> it's,
0: it's, there are many swedes that want that too i can tell you <laughs> i'm sure
1: there are now um Ulf, uh, let me just quickly uh introduce you and then i'd like to throw to you to kind of give us a bit of background yourself so um Elvaldsen, you're the senior vice president and head of the business area digital services part of ericsson could you maybe just give us a quick introduction to yourself and that role
0: Ericsson is divided in business in different business areas um one is networks where we uh, build mobile systems and deliver them to customers uh and then we have my business area which is really about uh, our customers being able to monetize the whole infrastructure that they've bought um they're also able to manage it they're able to basically all the IT systems that are surrounding a mobile implementation is in, in the area of digital services.
1: I remember talking to some of your colleagues when we had the privilege, and thank you very much for that again, for the uh, tour behind the scenes in the Ericsson studio. And what struck me was that when I looked at the two parts of the business that you just described, you had sort of the infrastructure piece of rolling up poles and wires and antennas and all of the <laughs> telephony piece. But really it seemed to me, and, and that was great, but it seemed to me the heart and soul of the organisation was the business services component because you, know, you do everything from... You know sign up and registration new consumers and i I remember talking to Patrick Corwell a couple of days ago, and he said "You're signing up a million right. new subscribers a day worldwide.
0: It is an enormous growth, of course, and uh, I mean. For me, when I started in Ericsson in 1990, mobile telephony was something that was for only a few very privileged people in the world. It was something that you dragged around and if you had a car installation, it took several days to wire up a car to be able to make a mobile call. Um, And we only had a few million subscribers in the world at the time, mostly businessmen. And today, I mean, we have now this year passed, we're approaching 8 billion subscriptions in the world. uh, And there are only 9 billion people, something. So it's, it's an amazing achievement. It's almost unbelievable what a journey this has been. Well, it
1: is. I mean, I think, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was like, what, 1985 or 1986 when sort of the whole GSM standard became a thing and and uh, carriers worked out that they could share that, that standard and that technology and, and talk to each other's networks. So we're really only talking about a couple of decades of that explosive transition from, as you said, you know, the, the rare few with the money they could afford carrying a brick around or, or put it in their car to now essentially… The and it bed- was…
0: Yeah, it was GSM. I, I think that's you're you're hitting on a very interesting point. That the the foundation for our industry's growth has really been the standard that we're creating a standard. Very few other industries in the world are built like that. Most other industries are built on proprietary development, or you come out with something that is better than anyone else. Uh, typically, the IT industry is like that. You look at IBM or you look at Hewlett Packard. All of those companies are built on technology that they were alone with in the beginning and that were later copied or built by other companies. In the telecom sector, and GSM is probably the best example of that, you first agree on a standard and then everybody go build. And that is another way. It takes a little bit longer in the standardization phase, but once you get there, you have this, I would say, uh, explosive growth. Uh, I remember when we, in the 90s, as you speak about, we used to go down... Uh, here in shista to 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 the big canteen and we used to hear our leader at the time stand there and and, and explain to us that you know this could this could hit 100 million subscribers which we thought was fantastic and then the few, a few couple of years later this could hit a billion uh, and then after that we launched a new program that we called the next billion which was to hit 2 billion and today i mean we are where we are so it's it's been an amazing journey built on a standard
1: and it, and it has even more growth in it. I remember reading in the uh, 2017 Ericsson Mobility Report, which uh, I, I have a hard copy that has been very seriously scribbled on, coffee stains on it, and, and notes all over the place. And you know, I think uh, there was a, a comment that there's another 2.6 to 5.5 billion different subscriptions, not just in the 8 billion human beings that you're talking about, but also um, just different subscription types. And, and you know, one example I think... Um, Uh, was it John Gamble and your team who was doing the uh, behind the scenes tour First, was talking about putting things like thousands of sensors on bridges and turning a a normal iron bridge into a digital thing by by making it a subscriber.
0: Once we started to get sight on that journey, when we added the billions and we were celebrating the billions that we were penetrating of basically the world's population, all of a sudden we started to realize, hey, we're going to run out of people so 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 we said you know we have we have two we have two options either we make more people or we start to connect new things and um, and we said the first sounded more fun <laughs> which was a joke internally but the second one is really where we started to see microprocessors and the technology of microprocessors entering into almost everything and that was a parallel universe so in the parallel universe microprocessors started to go into everything from light switches to doors to locks to anything and then we said well what if all those were connected if they were all connected they'd be part of the same journey but now a much bigger journey than when it came to connecting all the people in the world so that's why we you know in 2009 ericsson went out in in one of the big trade shows we have in which is in barcelona we went out and said that uh, maybe there will be 50 billion connected devices by 2020. And that was, I don't know what happened, that became viral at the time. And the internet wasn't as big as it is now in, in 2009, but it went really viral. I remember traveling to China just a couple of months afterwards, and we had a meeting with the government in China, and they looked seriously at us and they said, you know what? There could be 50 billion connected devices by 2020 in Chinese governments, <laughs> I realized, oh, wow, we said, that's that's an amazing insight. So I think in that sense, we we, we knew that we were on to a completely new journey. Now we know that that's really happening. We're seeing, you know, connected devices going added by the hundreds of millions per day.
1: Well, it's, uh, you know, I think there's a number of big shifts that have come about. And, and, and it's interesting to hear you say that, that places like China, countries like China, and governments like the Chinese government, they, um, you know, often big numbers like that don't surprise them. And uh, I know a lot of people in the West uh, are still really catching up with what it actually means to be in someone like Africa or India or China. But, you know, to put some context in that, I mean, there's like 1.1 1. 1 billion people in Africa and 1.3 billion people in India and 1.5 billion people in China. So, you know, I always, right. when people sort of try to get their head around what that means, I always say, well, if you're in China and you're one in a million, there's 1,500 of you. So, you know, the scale of things <laughs> is so much bigger and uh you know I mean Australia's only got twenty three million people in it and and yet right, cities right. like Shanghai have thirty three point five or thirty three point six million people, so one city's got our entire national population
0: um but and that, and that and that you can see in china i mean even the the art of city planning is reaching new levels because they know. And I'm not sure how familiar you are, but a few years ago, China really started to launch in their five-year plans a very sustainable program, which is built on high-tech and technology development. So you would see, even as we move towards 5G in mobile telephony, which is the next generation, which is even more built on on, uh, IoT and mobility of IoT, there you would see China being one of the absolute leading Nations in terms of uh, using this technology to build a more sustainable society, more sustainable cities, and by that meaning that they can contain all these people that, that you talk about. This well,
1: absolutely. I, I remember reading a stat a while ago where they had built something like a, I think it was 220 uh, megacities, uh, and I think the definition of megacity yeah. mega was like you know between. 10 and 25 million people and they built them empty just rolled them out in preparation for growth and another stat that really staggered me which i had to go and, and research and check was that i think america took something like 100 years to consume 4.5 4. gigatons of cement to build infrastructure and yet in the last eight years china's used 6.5 gigatons so nearly one and a half times more in in sort of the better part of a decade that took 10 decades for america to use and uh, you know, I think there's some really exciting t- things to happen around that space, Just you know, not just in mobility, but that's a, that's a no-brainer. But now, before we dive into the role that you have around you know, the Senior Vice President of Head of uh, Business Area Digital Services, that's an exciting title, and I'd love to get into that in a minute. Before we do that, though, I'd love, if you don't mind, just to get a little bit of insight into you personally, because I saw some interesting things that I'd love to throw at you and get your uh, response to. I understand you speak something like four languages, English, French, German and <laughs> Swedish. And I think you alluded to even some phrases in Indonesian recently. Tell us, is that something that comes from childhood or is that a recent thing that you just liked languages?
0: No, uh, those are educations that I took at school. And I, I, I have to admit that my French is probably pretty rusty by now. But it, but Indonesian is because, or Bahasa, which they speak in is because I got married to an Indonesian uh, woman, uh, which has led me to really fantastic experience and eye-opening experiences of uh, another big country with only 270 million people in it Uh, and and they have several megacities but they are coming from a very poor situation and they have a tremendous growth and they have everything in front of them but they also have a lovely society and together with my wife I, I have a farm in East Java which is totally at contrast with everything that I'm doing that worked, I will tell you. <laughs>
1: Uh, it sounds it sounds pretty amazing I mean I think there 's an interesting thing people say about um, when children grow up with uh, two or more languages that they, they actually build physical neural pathways in the brain to cope with processing language as opposed to if you only grow up with one language you you end up having to emulate it effectively in software in the brain and, and you end up with this translation capability which you can get very good at, but you just never get the physical neural pathway pathways and it changes the way the brain works and the way you think but I like your idea <laughs> of uh, I love your idea of retiring on a farm in uh, Indonesia. My my example of that is I look forward to uh, retiring at an old age uh, on the island of Lipari in the alien islands in the middle of Mediterranean and getting old and grumpy and, and finishing mm. my days there. But uh, Indonesia is a beautiful spot. <laughs> Indonesia, Phil, is. numbers wise, it sort of falls nicely into the sort of scale that you deal with on a day-to-day basis. Because, you know, I think there's like 16,000 islands through the entire region of Indonesia and about 14,000.
0: rich it long
1: Isn't it amazing? And about 14,000 of those are actually populated. But I think there's about 5,000 that are densely populated. <laughs> I remember doing some work with BRI Bank, and they have 49 million oh. customers. And you know, talking about trying to get mobile internet banking to those customers was just a, an amazing challenge.
0: Now, and mobility is picking up very fast. There, uh, I you know, I, I actually I participated in the World Economic Forum sessions in 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 in, in uh, Asia for a couple of years, and and there you could see that. Um, and, and of course, everybody knows about the take-ups of Alibaba and the, the other sites in Asia. But you will also see Indonesia being one of the, the first, if I remember it right, and fastest or the fastest growing uh, e-commerce uh, economy in, in 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 East Asia. And and the reason, of course, is that the normal shopping there is 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 limited. Uh, to put it to put it blunt. Uh, but on the Internet, everything is available. And the smartphones that comes from what our company do at Ericsson, they are penetrating the society so fast and changing people's lives. Uh, then comes a funny thing, which is interesting. They don't have addresses, so they have to go to a shop to pick up the stuff. But it doesn't matter. They can get stuff that they, they normally can't. So just shows how technology is transforming people's lives on a scale that is uh, hard to imagine, as you say, if we sit in the West.
1: It is. I I remember reading about uh, how in Africa, um, banking was almost impossible to get to. And yet when GSM was available, they started developing (laughs) SMS-based transactions. And I think for the the large part, they still do. And I know that Ericsson was very deeply involved in making that possible with interfaces between the banks and the banking systems and SMS messages. And and still a large part of where certainly uh, East Africa and and South Africa, a lot of banking is done by SMS and, and GSM. Um, And I remember seeing a thing recently that you were involved in across Ericsson, uh, particularly your part of the business, of a rollout of of a carrier in India that is effectively a data-only carrier. They don't really do voice, and they've got this mobile network rolling at some outrageous rate where they're effectively all app-based calls. And and I guess the the key thing with that, I noticed, was um, what you've achieved there is in places like uh, the region of Africa and certainly India and Southeast Asia – People haven't had to go through that dial-up modem internet experience and having a desktop PC and plugging it in, the flashing lights, and the wow, wow sound. They have gone from nothing to everything almost overnight. And now they've got in their hands this sort of smartphone with the internet walking around their pocket with them, and they've sort of joined the world. It's almost like these massive billion-plus populations have woken up, uh, and it's, it, I honestly have no idea how your business even copes with that million-subscription-a-day uh,
0: challenge. Now you you uh, can com- and the traffic. Oh, I will tell you the traffic tra- is gigantic. Right? If you if you look at all the, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example just so you understand. Every vo- all voice traffic in the entire world, if you break that down per subscriber, it's about twenty twenty megabytes of data that is needed to carry all the voice. You know, if the voice was translated, as you say in an operator that is data only, that would be a voice over IP. That would correspond to about 20 megabytes. And the average data traffic in the world right now on smartphones is, is three gigabytes, which is you know, a, an order of magnitude several uh, on top of the 20 megabytes. So voice has become insignificant in terms of traffic. It doesn't even show up. It's, as I call it no voice is noise. Because you can't even see it on wow. the, on the on, on, yeah you know. so so what was telephony which was a voice centric business is today a entirely data centric business and it's grown by about a, a a gigabyte a year in terms of how fast it grows per user and just in the next years it will grow up to i think it's in the next five years it will grow up to more than close to twenty gigabytes you know per per user. And just to cope with all that, every byte has to be sent <laughs> has to be sent through uh, routers and, and uh, technology in the systems and through the radio access uh, radio access over the air. So to cope with all that we're you know, we're running out of frequencies and we're running out of all kinds of things. But this is what Ericsson does. Well it's it's almost... it's that.
1: It's almost uh, eye-wateringly large numbers. And when you talk about the difference between 20 meg and 3 gig, you are right. It's it's several yeah. orders of magnitude, larger, and then multiplied by two kind of thing. And I guess there's no sign of slowing down either, is there?
0: There is no sign of slowing down. It's, it's actually the data traffic per year on average grows with if I remember right now, around seventy percent I think. So, you know, with that seventy, seventy seventy, you get almost the chessboard effect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, the, uh, from yeah. mythology, if you remember that. So so there and we need to cope with all that. Uh, and that's why I've I've also said in other interviews that, you know, the future oil of society, if you think that oil is a scarce resource, is gonna be radio frequencies. Oh, there's so, no, you know,
1: no doubt about that, is there? And, and you know, I guess the challenges in that, in that sort of you know, bandwidth space, as you said before, you can only get so many frequencies. And uh, by the time we end up splitting them and compressing them and, and, and playing with the math, it's still a finite amount of bandwidth uh, that's it is. capable of carrying some data. Now... I know I read in your background that you uh, you studied at the Institute of Technology at um, uh, Lynchcom, is it? I pronounce that correctly. Yeah, yeah. Lynchoping. Lynch- yeah, that's right. Lynchoping. And, and you did a Master of Science um, in the field of study of technology and business management. So you've come sort of from both a technical background and a business background. That That's probably given you I a did. very solid f- uh, foundation to build on the role you've got now uh, in that I imagine you've got to be able to jump in the boardroom and speak plain English very slowly and clearly to business people. But then also go toe to toe with the technology geeks.
0: Yeah, no, it's true. And but from the beginning I actually did that because I thought I would become an industrial designer. And I also took industrial design in parallel. Something that I did not write so much about on my LinkedIn page, but I did. And and the idea was because I love arts and I love painting and drawing and so on. So I thought this was gonna be my profession. And when right. I started at Ericsson, I started modestly by making a few designs on, you know, trying to draw Draw some of the base stations for for our for com for uh, commercial purpose to show you know rendering pictures, which is which is what used in our in some of the publications that Ericsson put out at, in 1990. But that did not become my career. So other parts of that education were more useful. I soon found out. So,
1: <laughs> well, I, I think we're better off having you where you are now. That's for sure, because uh, you 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 have an enormous uh, width and breadth and depth that you you focus on now. And in fact, I would love to, I would love to dive into that a bit more if you can. Just around the, the actual role itself, could you maybe um, just uh, for listeners and myself just uh, give us a bit more definition around uh, when we say the senior vice president and head of the uh, business area digital services um, what, right what does it actually that role itself entail within the organization of Ericsson?
0: well it's you know like many very large companies, we are divided up in business areas and market areas in in one way or another, I would guess that most big, large industrial companies are organized like that. This is what I'm running now is a business area uh, and the one that is dealing with uh, basically all kinds of i t systems and technology around monetizing networks. Running networks um, and and so forth. Okay. I think uh, it's it's um, it's a role that I've had now since uh, since uh, April. Uh, it's a very big challenge because we're actually not profitable enough, so we're working very hard on a big turnaround of the unit. At the same time, the growth in this. In this segment in the market is somewhere around five six percent per year. So in in telecom terms, that's good because most of the telecom world is not growing. Uh, our operators are not growing; they haven't grown since two thousand seven. Actually, um, in the network segment is is not growing either. It's actually flat to 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 a little bit down, a couple of percentage points down on an annual basis. So the, the growth of the future in the telecom sector lies in managing all the bytes and bits that we just talked about, being able to monetize that and actually creating completely new services towards enterprises and so forth that they can use what we call the 5G technology and all that. And in that in that sits the business area I'm now running. Before this, I was CTO for almost six years of the Ericsson Group, which was, you know, a good foundation for being able to create 5G. Uh, During my time, we actually did that. So I'm very excited and proud that we were able to bring the next generation mobile telephony to life. And there were lots of people after 4G that asked, is there gonna be a new generation? Are we doing, you know, what do we need it for? Uh, Now, knowing that that we've asked all the way back since what you mentioned, Des, on, on, on GSM, which was today called 2G. Uh, 2G was after 1G, which was an analog version before, which was not as roaming capable as you, you described it. And then we've had the Gs coming, and then people say, what do we need it for? They asked that every generation. And uh, during my time as CTO, we were able to nail that down. Uh, it coincided with the whole notion of IoT and you know that internet would actually connect every microprocessor out there as they call about it's parallel universe i talked about that was just happening in parallel with mobile telephony's enormous take up and we were able to marry that into 5g which leads us to a system that has a total new performance level compared to to what you would find in um, uh, in in 4g or earlier generations and before that i was running radio so i've done my I've done my I've done my piece on the mobile telephony part, and now I'm doing my piece on how how our customers can better monetize it and better make money out of the future generations of mobile telephony.
1: Well, I think I think it's an amazing pedigree to have behind you. I think you know when we look at roles like uh, the CIO role, for example, there's been a shift from technically uh, savvy uh, CIOs to more business savvy CIOs, uh, and they swung one way and then the other. Now there's sort of a marriage in between. I think you've got this amazing background of, of business and technology now to take this thing on, where it's a ma- a good blend because I don't think anybody can take it on with a pure business or financial focus or marketing focus or sales focus, but I don't think anyone that's purely technical can do it either. I think, it, I think that's that magic blend you've got, which is going to hold you in very good stead. I'm sure it already does. Now, you talked about 5G. You. you must have a lot to do with the 3GPP um, part of the project of getting the standard of 5G yeah. uh, in place. Um, what does that look like on a day-to-day basis in your world as far as the... The team around you and your involvement in in 3GPP.
0: Well, I you know, 3GPP was actually created by Ericsson. Um we we um we needed and why it's called 3GPP is is because it's a partnership program that would pre-work all the standardization when we were creating 3G to later put it into Etsy, which actually does the standardization. So, uh, yeah, the role uh, you know, for many years I've been working with that. Uh, it's actually funny because as we sit here in in in, in, in Chista today, uh, we are just announcing just before Christmas here that uh, the radio standard, the NR standard, is is actually today announced as ready. Oh wow! So we're going. Yeah. Uh, uh, when when people hear this, it's it's going to be it's going to be uh, a little bit after that. But 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 um, today we're going to make a press release about that. So I'm safe to say that but i think uh, it is um, it is a fantastic development that we've done on the radio interface which is first done uh, but if you if you then um, uh, go to the core network which is part of what i do now in digital services we have to wait a little bit more we're working on the standard and it's going to be um, uh, it's going to be coming out i think in the first half of next year in different releases uh, and so forth so 5g is becoming real i would say we're going to see the first systems really scaling up to a you know some sort of real deployments in the mid of 2019 because that's when the devices are are coming and the chips and the even even handheld terminals on 5g actually that's an ex-
1: exciting piece of news uh quote-unquote a headline there. and thank you very much for that uh I think one of the one of the biggest challenges has been the the whole standard around NR, uh, given that at the end of the day the signals are still technically radio, right?
0: Yeah, it's the, radio signals. I mean, we still have Channon's law. If you know how to transmit with and transmission capability versus bandwidth, uh, that is, a, you know, we're approaching how much you can actually transmit given a, a certain bandwidth. Uh, every day, I read about someone on the internet who says they broke Shannon's law, <laughs> but they never did. <laughs> <No>. So, but, <laughs> but we, you know, that, that we have, and, and we're of course using technology to on the radio side to its largest extent with you know massive MIMO solutions. We have a, a coding now that is basically totally amazing compared to if you compare to the kind of codings that we were using when we were doing GSM in terms of speeds and capabilities. Uh, And we're using a combination of these technologies to be able to transmit as much as possible. 5G also holds uh, a capability to launch in much higher frequency spectrums. As I said, we're running out of frequency a bit, so it's good if we can use more spectrum. Um, But we're also able to launch it on very low spectrums, which uh, means that it can be interleaved into the existing mobile technologies. For, For a technologist, you would say that 5G is kind of a radio dream it is so flexible, it's so fast, um, and it's going to get this standardization done uh, by the announcement today, which is coming later today. Uh, and with that, you're going to see the same fantastic growth curve that you, you get in our industry because of the standards that we talked about on GSM, for example.
1: Well, I guess, and for folk listening who may not know, uh, you mentioned uh, MIMO, and massive MIMO. Effectively, we're talking about you know, very large. Lots of
0: antennas. Yeah, very large, <laughs> large arrays
1: of antennas, right? Lots Uh, because we sort of have this problem of trying to get the amount of bandwidth, if you like, from one place to another just for the connectivity and carriage. But a lot of them have kind of not so much been band-aids, but attempts to kind of bridge that gap between 3 and 4G, and then some people talked about 4.5G, but really... The, as you said, the, the quantum leap, if you like, I don't know if that's the appropriate description to what five G would be, where three G was kind of like voice, four G kind of made video possible, but it was very much downward streaming. Five G is kind of be a return right. path, isn't it? It's like it's not just increasing the capability of the signal to the consumer, but it's also a return path.
0: No, absolutely. Uh, now I'll see if I can remember this. But if if you compare, I mean, first you had an analog, and that was a voice. A voice channel basically running. A voice channel at that time was a 64-kilobit thing that you ran. If you transfer it to data, uh, it would be that. That was a PCM speed that all telecom networks had at the time. And this is in 1980s, so it's a while ago. But everybody thought that was pretty amazing that you could make mobile calls. Then we come into uh, GSM, and GSM was able to compress those voice calls down to uh, 14 kilobit per second vocoders that was called, and then we could have compressed all that into uh, 200, 200 kilohertz channels, and we were able to, you know, make much more capacity over time uh, on on, on uh, GSM systems. And then everybody said, "Well, we should be able to do data here," and we launched a fantastic data system that had the speed of 20 kilobits per second. You know, and that, you know, this is the time of a modems, you know, modems could do more, but, but this was, this was mobile. We had to live with those 20 kilobits and people thought that was pretty good. And I've even seen internet pages downloaded on, on 24 kilobits and so on. Yeah. Uh, Now if you compare then came 3g 384 kilobits per second you know we were never going to run out of capacity this was amazing you could do video telephony on 64 kilobits inside 3g and where we were now going to go up to five mega uh, megahertz uh, channels and we did all that in 3g and then <laughs> quickly ran out of capacity because now data consumption started to really grow. So we started to take 3G uh, through the use of, of something called HSPA, which was a new technology that could make the throughput much higher. So we went up to 2 two uh two um uh, uh megabytes yep. or of, of, of megabits of data transmission speed two went to 10 10 went to 20 20 went to 40 40 went to 80 all of that and then we said well we need a new generation we need something that's based on a radio technology called OFDMA. let's try to do that so then came the ideas of 4g no one could wait for 4g so ericsson came up with you know we had a meeting with uh with Docomo, I remember here in Shizuoka, we came up with a plan for the long-term evolution into 4G, and that became LTE. So even the word LTE comes from our company when we created that. Um, wow! And and yeah, well, LTE became pretty big. Uh, <laughs> I told you before uh, <laughs> all the number of subscriptions, and, and so anyways, it's been a, it's been just amazing with these consumptions. And then if you look at 5G now, we th- we think it's going to be so much capacity. We're saying we're going to have. 20 gigabits at, uh, of, of speeds, you know, 20 gigabits compared to, to to LTE, which was designed for 100. It was designed for 150 um, uh, megabits per second, and, and today we can bring LTE up to one gigabit, or a little bit little bit more than that. But but um, but to go to 20 now will give us eternal, which I don't believe. So we will run out. We just don't know when. It's
1: like, it's like a multi-lane freeway, isn't it? know, We always hear uh, state,
0: <laughs> s- state and federal government
1: say, oh, it's a two-lane freeway. It'll never get filled up with cars. It's a four-lane freeway. No. <laughs> I, uh, I was in the US recently, and I had the mind-boggling experience of being on a 10-lane freeway, and it was full of cars. Uh, it's one of those things where, what do they say <laughs> in that famous movie about the baseball? It's like, you build it, they will come now i I know there's yeah, a number sure. of there 's a number of really big things that you deal with on a regular basis, and I want to touch on a couple of them particularly net neutrality gdpr, and that eventually this whole concept around building a sustainable future that 's part of the whole motto that 's on your LinkedIn profile but could we chat a bit just about the challenge of net neutrality in your world what, what is that How does that even work in your world given the challenges that come with what net neutrality means
0: Well, net neutrality is a concept where Uh, Basically, the concept is that there are people who do the services and there are people who do the networks. And that division was not there from the beginning. We've talked here about GSM and this. You remember all through the 90s and the beginning of of this uh, millennium, we were convinced that the services and the service providers would be the same yeah but the launch the launch of the iPhone I would say very much an apple thinking was that let 's bring all these services out of the network let 's try to provide something that is much bigger, otherwise we'd be limited to innovation of service providers when it comes to new services and and that happened, uh, and it was just waiting to be happening. i think there's already been other launches done before that by a number of internet companies who could provide services that were more exciting faster innovative than the three four service provider per market could really provide and that means that we've seen an explosion in that side but it also created some giants on really providing the services like google facebook and the internet companies the large internet companies and they have of course thrived from networks Uh, there's no doubt there would be no google and there would be no facebook and no amazon without the network uh, so they've been using this, of course, to create an enormous opportunity and also, you know, the fastest growing in- uh, industry on the planet. Now, as it comes down, the wish from the service providers to be able to build more networks, build more capacity. You remember what I said about data and the amazing growth to, to three, three, three gigabytes per user now and will go to 20 gigabytes in just a few years. All of that has to be paid for. You know, somehow those networks have to be built uh, and they have to be expanded. And therefore, there is a wish from the service providers to actually say, if we provide you with a better service, a bigger pipe, a better pipe, a better functioning pipe, uh, and in in 5G, even a faster pipe, we would would like to get paid for that. And they want to have a monetary transaction uh, between themselves and someone using the network for providing these services. That is not just a big data bucket. That's the whole essence of this net neutrality debate. Uh, so you would say, you know, the other side says, well, hang on a second. If you're going to charge for these things, what about me, small internet company, want to launch a service that could grow the same way that Google has grown or, you know, they, they've grown on an algorithm. There might be a new algorithm out there. It might be someone new who wants to innovate something. They would like not to pay for all that uh usage they would like to have as free start as Google and the other guys have. And therefore, it's called net neutrality. It means net, networks should be neutral to the Internet providers or Internet service developers. Uh, and and in the U.S. for a while, it, you know, laws were being made, and it's been particularly much in, in North America, very, very U.S.-centric debate, uh, to be very honest. Europe has not yet prohibited it uh operators from having uh financial uh transactions done to companies who create services uh, as much uh, there has been example but not so much and in china there's nobody paid at all i mean there you could you know there are relationships between uh service providers and and uh, and um, and uh, people who who develop new services i think if 5g is going to be a reality we are going to get used to the thought that yeah there is a difference between pipes here um, I think someone who is driving on a remote-controlled car or having, you know, worst-case eye surgery done with remote surgery service using a 5G network would not like the guy standing on the corner playing his computer game to slow down the service. <laughs> you know, that would be devastating, right? So we we have to divide these services into different buckets and therefore... By 5G, we're going to see net neutrality debate, I think, weakening because it's obvious that there has to be an opportunity for someone who builds a network that is so responsive as 5G with milliseconds of delay, very big pipes being able to be opened up to have some differentiation of service northbound to people who develop new new services for people.
1: Well, I think eventually what happens, uh, and, and we've sort of seen it in different formats over the last uh, two and a half decades, is if... if enough people get their hands on the throat of the internet, they do eventually strangle it. I know, uh, I remember, <laughs> you know, and, and you're right. I mean, a lot of people think about, you know, consumers are up in arms around the world, particularly in the US, because uh, I think it was December the 14th uh, this month uh, in the US, the FCC uh, Republican majority approved, I think it's chairman, as Ajit Pai's uh, plan to yeah. essentially you know, pull the net neutrality protections apart and start to allow carriers to do that. And, you know, and right. Some,
0: well, I've, s- met, I've met him several times, and I met the former, the former chairman of FCC a lot as well. But I think I think the uh, I think we 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 will see a more uh, sober debate about this because sometimes the tones of the debate has become that this is you know the freedom of internet. It's the it's 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 about uh, consumer. Consumer democracy, in some way, even the democracy debate has 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 been tangled into this, which I think is an illusion, and and why it's an illusion is because because the reality is that if there are no networks, you know the worst the worst thing that can happen to democracy is that it's silent.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: so I, I think you know we need to be able to develop networks to be able to facilitate. And with the people who argue these things, maybe many many times, don't see that traffic growth that you and I are talking about. That's seen as just technical terms. Absolutely, and I <laughs> but think it's a very big reality. I can tell you, for us who build networks and build systems to to manage them.
1: Well, in many in many ways, I hate to say, but I think you know there's there's an aged. Uh, uh, Debate that's held in very much a 1986 era mentality around what the internet used to be. Uh, you yes. Know. Uh, and and I, I think in particularly in North America and, and you know, God bless America, but uh, in many ways, they've experienced that transition from sort of, um, you know, telcos and ISPs and the AT&Ts and so forth of the world being the only place you can get an email address. And then along mm-hmm. came AOL that was not a carrier. Yeah. And, and, you know, that classic you've got mail in, in the, the, that movie, the film, yeah. whatever it was, um, that became famous. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, you sort of had this transition from from the carrier to sort of an internet service provider to an AOL. And then we sort of saw it happen out on the internet at large what we now call the cloud, I guess, with what was hotmail and then yahoo and you know and, and now everybody has a, some sort of webmail or some form and has no idea what the relationship they 've got to the network is, and I think in many ways, a lot of the fear factor in some parts that 's very emotive in my personal opinion around net neutrality is built around those very old ideas of what the internet might have been a couple of decades ago, but as you 've just alluded to uh, we 've got other parts of the world that are moving so quickly, sprinting at what 5g will bring about. Uh, and I think in many ways it'll become one of those user pay things. I think one of my favorite analogies around this is um, the price of a cup of coffee. Now, some people want the convenience of a, of a $2 coffee, either at McDonald's on a drive through or at the airport. And others want to pay $7 for a barista to make them the best cappuccino on the planet, but it takes them eight minutes. And so I think there's going to be this, this drive to consumers learning uh, around this maturity, if you like, where they can choose. Yeah. And they already do that, right? I mean, you know, they already do that. A, right. pe- a million people signing up today on the Ericsson network. They choose the yeah. data plan, the quality of the phone, the network, and the price point. And I think that's going to drive it more than anything. I, I don't think anything governments and, and carriers can do or, or whatever is going to change that because if one carrier behaves badly, people will just churn. That's the beauty of today's technology. Now, there's another interesting, there's another really big topic I'd love to throw at you in. And I hope you don't mind, but particularly in your neighborhood, GDPR, the the global data protection regulation coming out of Europe, uh, a lot of people look at it in in, in sort of, you know, North America, uh, certainly Southeast Asia and Australia my world, go, oh, that's a European problem. But Then I always put my hand up and say, well, hang on, where are you in the supply chain for some of your partners around the world? And they're like, well, what does that mean? I was like, well, if, if if you're doing some sort of fulfillment and there's an address coming to you via email or database that you have to deliver to, or if there's an internet billing service, or you know, if I buy a Gmail account and I buy it out of uh, you know, an, a European provider, um, GDPR comes into play. I imagine that GDPR is kind of like another Y2K event that that we're all just trying to come to grips with, and, and it must have an even more foundational shake effect uh, in your world and the telco because uh, data is moving over your network that is going to be GDPR. Uh, I guess, you know, compliant requirements, but also um, the whole challenge of the multi layered sort of security and compliance and encryption. Uh, how does one even begin that conversation around GDPR and, and the world of Ericsson and carriers?
0: No, I think, I mean, general data protection regulation is something that I think is very fundamentally very positive, actually. I, you know, my, my I think people are starting to form opinions and react to the, I would say, intrusion of privacy that many of these internet capabilities that we have uh, is, is actually doing to us. It uh, knows where we've been, knows who we talk to, knows everything. And some of that is used to make better services for us. You know, as people say, the, you know, the, consumer, the consumer industry is going towards companies guessing what you would like to see or guessing what you would like to listen to or guessing what you would like to buy um and that might be very helpful but in, in 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 general to just let all this data free flow without people being in control of what data they 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 have and they're willing to share i think is not going to be in in the actual consumer interest it will stress people to a level that i think and it will also provide security risks for people or, or make security risks possible for people that they cannot even imagine. Um, even with AI now, we, we, you know, there are systems that can figure out things that you don't even know about yourself. Um, so I think in that sense, I think this dere- regulation is overdue a bit. I think it should have been introduced earlier in this time. I think the service providers of the world are probably the best capable organizations of anonymizing data and making sure that you have consent. Uh, You have to remember that they are, you know, the the customers of Ericsson, if you will, the AT&T's and and of the world and, and, and the Telstra's of the world in Australia and Optus and, and, um, and, and, and all the carriers of the, of the different countries. They are very used to having a high and pretty strict level of privacy around your accounts and how that is managed. Yeah. Uh, it's, when the service, it's when the new services were introduced that you, in order to use this app, you need to click here, where you, by the way, give consent in a very long, very small text written uh, that you never have time to really look at. And besides, your screen on smartphone is too small to even read it. And then you put yes, uh, and then you can, you can move to the big service where the reward is that you get a lot of music or you get a lot of fun. And, and and that way people have said yes to a lot of things that they have no idea about you know apps of, of where your location is about is 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 you know the normal thing that is shared in almost any app now so i, I think in that sense i'm quite positive that the this uh, general data protection regulation will provide service provider with the tool to also be able to uh, tell consumers that we can we can we can um, we can secure that your data is anonymized and it's not personal, uh, which is really where, you know, the whole regulation is built on consent. So you have to give consent for for usage and, and so forth on every level. So it's consent of the people who use it. It's, it's consent to the next level. So data is not just shared and handed down through a long link of people sharing data. Uh, so in that sense, it's positive it negative side maybe is that this this comes pretty blunt and a lot of companies need to adjust to it banks and others which is hard because you have multinational operations um and you have to store data within country and there are lots of other things that are that are another side of the coin so that that side is is also tough to for many companies including our own to be really fully compliant with uh, but in, in in as from a consumer point of view i think it is an eye opener for many to understand that actually regulators are doing something to make sure that consumer data and privacy is is is, is regarded in a new way
1: absolutely and i, and I think when you, you alluded to this point uh, earlier on but just to recap on it you know, your industry in the telco space, certainly banking, uh, the whole financial services industry of banking, wealth management, asset management, uh, uh, insurance, et cetera. I mean, they've had to live with this in effect with uh, a combination of KYC, Know Your Client, and Anti-Money Laundering, AML. They've had to be able to vet the consumers to make sure that they're not doing something criminal, but they've also had a report on it. So I think we know that organizations can cope with it. Uh, maybe this is another order of magnitude or two uh, when it's sort of taken to web scale, as we say. Uh, but, yeah, you know, I, think, I think we've seen a, a couple of little analogies here that, that I can link to. I mean, we've seen uh, – and, and there's a really interesting phrase I'm re- I always like to call out, and that is – I re- read somewhere someone said, and I, I have to figure out who it was and, and be able to quote them, but uh, they said something to the effect that if you are not paying for a product or a service, then you are, in effect, the product yourself. And as you said, when you when you click on a box for, for whatever you know, – I'm not going to pick on a brand name, but if you have a streaming service for video or audio and you get it for free – you have to assume they're going to sell your data for something, whether it's advertising or, or something else. Because uh, otherwise, how do they stay in business? Right? They've got to make money.
0: Something. Right. Well, it's the whole idea, and 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 I think here is the real notion. I mean, we are we're coming from a telco space, building networks, providing people with smartphones. There are, I think, more than four billion smartphones now. We're approaching four and a half billion smartphones in the world. Phones that have apps, and you can click and do things on them, and. Um, I, I think uh, it's, um, uh, it, it's an amazing growth in that space, and then you have the other space, which you allude to, web scale. Web scale is really all these services that are—it's just a service creation based on the IP standard and the internet—that is just phenomenal. It goes into every make our our lives easier by the day. These two worlds, when they meet, there is either love in some places. You know, get amazing apps like Netflix, fast growth. Big networks. The only reason networks exist is because networks allow allow it to exist. Because otherwise, it can't be that right. So the whole we're going to break so many barriers in so many areas of digitalization where these two universes meet, and then all of a sudden there are some disagreements, like net neutrality. There are some disagreements, like there are on on uh, general data protection. How how, because and these are the modern problems of these two universes meeting. And you would see that again and again and again, and they're always going to come pragmatic view. I'm a pragmatist. I believe in people solving problems. So there's going to always be pragmatic view that allows services, but there's going to be a little bit more regulation. It's going to be a little bit. And, you know, it's the same with, with security, uh, you know, internet security, which is the hottest topic. You know, it's the same as as bank security. You know, the banks that existed in the in the Wild West, the, you could walk in and take the money if you had a gun. You can't really do that today. There's no money to start with. Um, but I think those have just been racing, racing on the security level gradually. Um, so, so that's you know yeah. we're going to see the same same development here. It's a gradual, gradual uh, evolution of, of new services.
1: I like the analogy of uh, of the bank robbery because uh, I read an article the other day where here in Australia somebody somebody I went to rob late. a bank and. Good, this uh, is- there this was very so little money left in the bank for them to rob. They actually robbed all the people in the bank that were there as customers because that was the only place that could get any money.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah they, they there is no money there anymore. No. And, and by the way, they don't need bank offices either. And I mean, you see that. You no, know, that's what we do in my unit in digital services, for example. Operators today have little shops downtown, and you yeah. don't even know which shop you're in. Right? Yeah. I mean, you go into one shop. I, I was going to the. To the so and so shop. Oh, well, this is not this one. It's next door, and the people working there—they you know—they keep rotating, so they don't even know which operator they work for anymore. So that doesn't—that's not the—that's not the relationship that you want. No, that's not the relationship you want with your consumers anymore. You want a totally digital relationship where people get value for their services. And so on. And that, and that's what we do at, at Ericsson Digital Services. We provide operators with a digital interface to all their users, where you can marry all these different channels, you can marry that with any apps, any other relationships that you have uh, in in a totally digital experience, and that translates back to the network and the changes that is needed to do in the network to provide different capabilities, different speeds, different uh, pipes, if you will, going back to what we talked about before, to different consumers or to different enterprises or different companies that would like to use 5G for IoT, for example.
1: Absolutely. Now, I know we're running out of time here, so there's a couple of things I'd like to throw at you in a second, but um, one of the exciting things that, uh, from what you're just saying now, one of the most exciting things I saw when we had the opportunity to do the uh, the behind-the-scenes tour, and thank you again for that, with the Ericsson Studio, was that it was clear to me that you actually were customer number one. You were already putting yourselves, Ericsson, uh, and the whole business services group through this digital transformation itself, the shift to clouds, shift to adopting AI, analytics, big data, etc., the transformation of, of putting IoT capabilities into the organization effectively i saw and correct me if i'm wrong but i i had the opinion that, and the view that after this tour ericsson was effectively cusp and number one you were buying this stuff from yourselves in a sense proving it worked in your own organization <laughs> and then we in do. turn after having productized it for your own purposes making it available to your partners and, and and resellers in effect is that a fair assumption sort of a way to describe what you're doing
0: no it's a fair assumption i mean every large company has to go in go through very big transitions ericsson has done that through our uh, 100 and more than 140 years history and you know we we started with telephony we started with telephones actually and, and telegraphs telegraphs uh, repairs and eventually telephone production and through this journey, we've gone from those wooden phones through all these things that led us to where we are now. When when I started, we were going through the transition of becoming a mobile company. We added radio engineers by the day. Now we are doing a transition to become a, uh, a what would you say, a, a digital transformation type of, of, of business based on software. Yep. And the unit I'm running, the BA that I'm running, is purely a software company. Um, we have some... Uh, thirteen thousand software engineers building and doing different software components in in, in a large number I think we have twenty seven different & d sites globally we we do that to be able to provide these new types of systems technology like AI or analytics and so on is what its foundation for doing that that's what people work with so I would say when I you know my i'm i'm now a little bit above 50 but i i notice that when i go out in these r&d units they're half my age but they do amazing things they do absolutely amazing things to just keep up with the with the technology and development that we that we will provide to 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 our customers so they can go beyond what those shops can provide them so they can do things that are going to be absolutely necessary to be competitive in the 5g era that we're just about to launch
1: well, the great thing is that anyone's anyone that's receiving services, either physical infrastructure or virtualized or cloudified or whatever it might be from what your team are doing, they're already certain that you're using it yourselves. Because I I caught up with uh, Mats Carlson the other day and he had this great line where he said that in the days of physical servers and routers and switches and servers, it might take eight months to roll out a new service. But now it takes like yeah. eight, eight minutes because it's a microservice on Kubernetes and Docker and it was running in your own OpenStack cloud. And such a a, a fundamental shift from months to minutes is just mind-boggling. And I remember talking to Jan Carlson about the uh, business services side of the organization he runs for you. And he had a similar thing saying that, you know, in many ways, you build infrastructure now, not for a bespoke environment, whether it's a billing system or an onboarding platform or a sign-up process or billing, but you build this capability where there's this malleable component where if you want to sign up a million people, as and when that sign-up process is required, you instantiate the environment to take all the connections and logins and passwords and PCI requirement. And then when it's finished, you burn it down and that infrastructure becomes free again in that cloud model. And so I th- <laughs> when you roll that out around the world, I think, you know, you're already yeah. doing that for yourselves. So for cloud, others to-
0: cl- Cloud for us is just an amazing uh, capacity booster uh, because now all of a sudden we can do, just like you say, we can seamlessly do things over a much larger... Um, yeah, uh, so sort of virtual area, uh, and I think that's that's the synergy of cloud. But it, the speeds that we can achieve, oh, it's it's just so significant from a process change in the customers. And I, I believe there's very little differentiation in actually just the voice service or or many of these things that that are in built again and again and again in service provider areas. So, therefore, they could be delivered over over cloud. And I think cloud technology is just about to hit the telecom sector the same way it hit the IT sector. I mean, today, you get the whole office suite of things that you do from a cloud and you don't even blink an eye. It's even safer than it was when you were running the servers in the basement. So, I believe that uh, this, this the track we're on is to be able to offer our customers the same capabilities out of telecom clouds that can be that can be just table stakes for them to be in the business, they can focus on that digital relationship to consumers, to enterprises and develop their business to the next level where the networks of 5G can provide the foundation of that.
1: Absolutely. And, and in fact, when you're talking about security there earlier on, it reminded me that, you know, uh, when we look at cloud and what will become the telecom cloud that you're building, it's far more likely to be the case uh, that uh, the thousands of people in your organization focused on availability and connectivity and security are going to outweigh, by so many orders of magnitude, it's, it's immeasurable, any enterprise uh, capability. You know, For, for me, to, even if I was a, a company with 100,000 people uh, running a bank, I might only have 20 people in security, whereas you might have 3,000 people. I can never compete with that, and, and getting that as a cloud service True. from you is going to be and, so
0: much better. That's where uh... – Exactly, because that's where the business aspect... If the businessman sees what cloud technology can do from a rationalization and specialization perspective, that's what you talk about. Yeah, You can use specialists in an area to solve a problem which is very complex that don't have to be solved over and over again. And that's exactly what happened in the IT industry. So when business people see this, they will quickly go to that because it's, it's a smarter way of doing the business. If it's a non-differentiating service... And you're able to use specialists in one area, go to the cloud. So we're going to see this happening through the telco sector over the next years to come now. It's just starting. So you will see that in a very large scale, which I think will bring the entire telco sector to focus on what those new networks can really do for enterprises. And that coincides with the parallel universe that's happening, and that is that all enterprises are digitalizing in the world. If those two get married, you know, I don't know where it will all end, but it will be very, very exciting to see company after company after company digitalize. You know, myself, I'm on the board of a of a large lock company, uh, the world's largest, Asa Abloy, um, which is uh, selling locks <laughs> to, to all over the world. And we can see that enterprises' locks and those lock systems are now totally digitalized. It's more about identity management and how to uh, handle identities going in and out of buildings or access to different things. That's now also coming over to the private sector where people would like to have goods that they bought of the internet, shipped home. People can open the door, put it inside by having a one-time access to the lock. They know who they are. It's all, um, you know, you could identify who does it. Uh, You know, in elderly care, we can use the same type of system to make sure that people can get into, take care of elderly who want to be treated in their homes. And it's a much safer way, and it's an enormous digitization. What does that mean for the service provider? It means that they can tailor-make the network services for such an enterprise, and therefore they also need a digital interface to those enterprises tying all that together. Yeah. So that's that's a new society. That's a, that's a very, very fast-growing opportunity for service providers.
1: Uh, it is very exciting. Now, to put some context in what you just mentioned there in passing, when you say that you sit on the board of uh, ASA Ablay, I mean, this is a company with like 10 billion annual turnover, about 55,000 yeah. staff. They come from a very big infrastructure background, I think you said, with, with like jail locks and other yeah. heavy industry. But it is exciting to see that move. Now, I, I remember seeing the, uh, the car in your Ericsson studio, and uh, where the conversation led around the idea of the uh, the boot having a special digital lock being uh, enabled. So right. uh, f- you could have fulfillment from you know, DHL or some retailer could fulfill directly to the boot of your car and they knew the ca- the car was located, at the car park in front of the Ericsson uh, buildings there in Schister and, and you ordered something online, you might have ordered dinner and all the ingredients get brought to your car, dropped in there, <laughs> kept nice and cold because it's freezing. And yeah. you just got out of work, got in the car, drove home, and you knew that all of your shopping was in the back of the car. I mean, that's, yeah. that's a very exciting uh, thing. And, in fact, it links directly to what was on that wall. I remember seeing with the 17 different tenants around the United Nations desire to just make life better. Now, I know we're coming up close to the hour, and you've got a hard stop. I would love, if you don't mind, before we wrap up, I'd love to hold, uh, hand you a, a virtual crystal ball and get you to gaze into it for a couple of minutes Uh, I'm very keen for you to kind of share, if you were to grab this virtual crystal ball and gaze into it for a couple of seconds, in three to five or more years, you know, big ideas, big trends, big disruptions. I mean, we've had a plethora of them already today on cloud, big data analytics, telephony, 5G, and I'm very excited to hear uh, you share the announcement today around the the NR uh, component standard being uh, released uh, and announced today. Thank you for that. If that wasn't good enough, what are the big things do you think are coming down the line? Where are the big shifts? Do you think are there going to be in the humanities space that that changes? Or do you think there's other big technical or commercial business uh, shifts coming about? What does it look like if you gaze into that crystal ball over the next three to five years?
0: Well, for me, I think it's very, very important for us. And when I'm looking into the crystal ball, I, I see also I see technology development at a very large scale, a little bit what we already talked about. But I think I would like to say that the human aspect is equally important, or more important. We need to, as humans, relate to this technology more. So, in my crystal ball, those things come together. I think in the sustainable development goals uh, that you just mentioned, the 17 goals, which will be, uh, you know, reached by. By 2030, it was part of the 2030 agenda. And I was actually in New York the day that they were announced as a CTO of Ericsson representing how technology and humans come together. And, you know, and the goal number nine is the one for infrastructure. But these goals also, you know, I think the, the industry that we are working with, the high-tech industry, is has the solution to many, many of these goals. But at the same time, it has to be done with the human aspect and with human uh, um, uh, human um, uh, uh, aspects being being regarded, so technology doesn't become scary or do the wrong things. Then, then, then we will never get to where we want. So, I think a sustainable society is a global society where the goals that were put up by UN, which I think is covering the human aspects very well, can be developed in such a way that we still uh, respect. Uh, humans, their cultures, their way of living, um, in, in a good way, and that you know we can support uh, humanity's development in a very positive direction. I am an optimist. I think we will do that. Uh, but I also see in many of the debates, many of the topics we talked about today on on, on this podcast are related to how uh, we are trying to cope with the marriage between human aspects, uh, privacy, for example. Uh, uh, and the new technology development, I think if we do this well, enterprises will be brought to a new level. We will be able to find enterprises positively working towards reaching these goals and towards building a better society for us. Uh, we need to regulate that in the same with the same aspects. But we also need the technology development to get faster and safer. And large companies like Ericsson certainly has a very important responsibility to make sure that that happens in a very good way. And we're going to take that. So I'm, I feel, optimistic that we will have. Um, many of these goals being reached through the use of technology. And then I'm thinking about poverty, you know, as well as hunger. We haven't even talked about what this will do for agriculture, but it's an enormous change going on right there. Uh, but it's also things like like uh, gender equality. If we look at the technology, predominantly a, a, a male sector today, we need to, that's another thing we need to work with and change to be able to build this more Uh, sustainable society. So I think there are so many aspects of this and I, I am very optimistic that we will come out on the other side with a society that people also have time to talk to each other and just relate to each other supported by technology in a positive way.
1: There were three key tenants that I walked away from the week with your amazing team and meeting yourself uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, and I wrote them down on the plane on the way home, which is something ridiculous, like a 27-hour flight (laughs) back-to-back. It is
0: very long. (laughs) It is
1: a long flight. I wrote down three things. Livelihood lifestyle and leisure i saw those and and when i read the uh, erickson mobility report uh, 2007 edition 2017 edition just uh, on the way back home as well and thank you for the copy of that in hard copy um that really rang true to me they're the three key tenets i sort of took away from that that Yes, you've got to make money as a business, and yes, you've got to transform the technology. But at the end of the day, what I left with was this hope kind of being realized that I was pretty confident that my 13-year-old son and 16-year-old daughter's futures were in good hands, uh, not just with Eric's in the brain, but also with the team around you personally and and the team around the organization. Um, And and I want to just say a quick final congratulations. Now, to this day, December 22nd, actually, so it's actually the 21st of Australia here, um... December 22nd, 2016, you wrote a blog and you stated that 2017 would be the momentous year for 5G. And all the things we've just spoken about were what you predicted in your blog exactly one year ago. So I, w- I just want to say congratulations <laughs> on being able to read the future. So all the things thank you've you. just spoken about in that crystal ball, uh, people should write them down because you got it right a year ago, and I suspect you've absolutely nailed it and got it right today. So look, um, Ulf Elbaldson, uh, Senior Vice President and Head of Business Area Digital Services for er- Ericsson, thank you so much for making such an amazing amount of time available for me in your crazy busy schedule. It's been an absolute pleasure <laughs> catching you. up.
0: Likewise, it was great to have this talk and, and, and thank you so much for having me.